We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of Alligator on July 2nd, 1980. Or possibly November 14th. The release date has changed on IMDb and Wikipedia since I put this list together. But most everywhere else, the release date is listed as July 2nd, and we'd rather review it early than late anyway. Seems like a summer movie to me. But an article in the July 9th, 1980 Hollywood Reporter said that it was the last day of principal photography, so that seems like it would have been difficult to have it edited and released a week before that if they were still shooting. <laughs> Instant cassettes. Yes. They're out in theaters before the film is finished. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was written by John Sayles, based on a story by Sales and Frank Ray Pirelli, and possibly some other people, and directed by Louis Teague, and released by Group One Films. Alligator was originally intended as a ripoff of Jaws, in the same tradition of the Jaws ripoffs Grizzly, Orca, and Piranha, which was also written by Sales. I disagree that Orca is a ripoff. Well, it's in the vein. It was definitely yeah. playing off of the popularity. I, I would agree to that. I, uh, I, I don't think it's... A- yeah, I don't think it's the same kind of thing because those other movies are kind of like comedies, like sp- spoofy on, yeah. on Jaws, whereas this one is just trying to be Jaws with alligators. Well, this was trying to be a satire too, in was the same it? way that Piranha was. Yeah. Oh, then I think it failed. Maybe. I disagree. Orca uh, is crazy. <laughs> we yeah, still actually, haven't I haven't, seen, I haven't seen Orca, yeah. so I can't speak to that one. But uh, Joe Dante was approached to direct this, though, as with Humanoids from the Deep, he worried it was too similar to his previous work and passed on the film. It takes it takes <laughs> place in Chicago. Sorry, so. I, I'm like, what was his similar work? Piranha. It's it's literally beat for beat Piranha. Yeah, I, I guess. <laughs> what what part of it is different from Piranha? Just the species, there's, right? There's a, it's only one. It's like one big So one. that's the difference. Yeah. Okay. Versus, versus, versus many. Yeah, but the, the film takes place in Chicago, but every shot is very blatantly Los Angeles, especially the Echo Park Lake stuff. And all the palm trees that are yeah. everywhere. Um, <laughs> those, are, those aren't native to Chicago? No, no. apparently not. Uh, the not first native here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the first draft of the script was written by Frank Ray Pirelli, but sales basically pulled a page one rewrite, so Pirelli's work was relegated to a story credit. It was originally intended to take place in New York, based on true stories of reptiles in the sewers, but it was eventually relocated to Wisconsin when it was decided that New Yorkers would be too jaded to react to a giant killer alligator stalking the streets. But wait, you realize that Chicago is not in Wisconsin. Correct. In the Wisconsin version that Pirelli wrote, the alligator grew from eating chemical runoff from a brewery. Apparently sometime <laughs> later it was moved to Chicago. Okay. <laughs> uh, All those growth hormones in the brew? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the live alligator that they used for some of the scenes was a 19-footer named Big Al from Louisiana Wildlife Preserve. The footage was mixed with a 30-foot-long remote control contraption that, in keeping with the Jaws theme, was extremely difficult to work with. It featured two puppeteers inside of the alligator. After production, the alligator prop was donated to the Florida Gators team as a mascot and made occasional appearances at games. Really? Yeah. 
After its release, screenwriters David Weinstein and Wahid Bakhter sued producers Brandon Chase and Joseph McGinn, as well as screenwriter Sales, for breach of implied contract and claimed that the final story for the film was cobbled together from two of their previous scripts. One was called See You Later, Alligator. (laughs) (laughs) And one was something called Jaws 3 Network 2. What? A spec script they wrote that was a sequel to two popular franchises. Network isn't even a franchise. It's just a movie. I I really hope the other one was going to be After a While Crocodile. Although I do wish that there were more double sequels, like a movie that represented a crossover (laughs) of two franchises. It really needs to happen eventually. But those both sound better than this. Like, I'm not saying that this movie didn't have its moments. Yeah. I'm just saying that those, like, sound like pure campy ripoff Jaws type things. Nonsense. And this was, I don't think this was that. It was. It was, though. I can't find any other work from these guys unless David Weinstein is also David Z. Weinstein, who wrote Big Trouble in Little China with Gary Goldman and W.D. Richter. But I doubt it based on the fact that he wrote a script called See You Later, Alligator. <laughs> Uh, unclear how their $700,000 case was settled. Brian Cranston allegedly worked on this film with the special effects department, and he would obviously later work with Robert Forster on Breaking Bad. That's obvious to us, not to Richard. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, that did happen. Another similarity with Humanoids, uh, James Horner was set to do the score for this film, but the plan was disrupted when uh, there was a strike going on at the time, and well, they had to find somebody else to do it. Yeah, and I read that he actually wrote the score but they just didn't they, they, use it they never they never recorded it yeah i'm really i really want to hear this un unrecorded james horner alligator it, it score. died with him it's gone forever richard john sales used his paycheck from this movie to fund the return of the sakaka seven a movie we'll be covering later this year and a sequel to alligator came out in 1991 but doesn't feature any actors or characters from this and it's basically just a remake of this film we open on an alligator's eye and we zoom out to show its bloodied mouth and a man approaching it. And we pull back further to reveal that this is an alligator show with an audience. So we're immediately less worried until something goes wrong. <laughs> and the star <laughs> of the stunt show is bit multiple times by a group of alligators. A parent in the audience complains about all the fake blood, which we just had in Stuntman. Somebody being like, oh, I wish they wouldn't use so much fake blood. And it's like, no, 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 that's that's real. Suddenly a few extra guys are jumping into the fray, beating at the alligators. Not killing them, but just getting them away from this guy because mm-hmm. they're probably expensive. The announcer says, Well, now, we promise you gator some folks, and uh, sometimes gators win. <laughs> <laughs> As the team carries the victim to safety, a girl and her mother seem, like, satisfied that this was, this is the show that they paid for. In the gift shop later, the girl's parents are somehow tricked into buying her a baby alligator. Mm. Like, is this actually an alligator, or is it just supposed to be, like, a lizard that... They well, say it's a baby alligator. Well, I mean, yeah, there. I mean, there are alligator lizards, but yeah. uh, I believe that this is a tiny alligator. It or looks tiny like a crocodile. baby alligator to me. So the plan is always that you're only going to have it for a certain time and then throw it away, because it's not like keeping it in a small cage is going to prevent it from growing to alligator size, uh, right? Well, that's actually not necessarily true. Uh, are they like goldfish? No, they won't grow as big as they would in the wild, and it will cause, you know, deformities in their growth if if you keep them in too small of a cage because, you know, they don't have enough room to to grow properly, but they won't get as big as they would in the wild. Well, she names this one Ramon, and she keeps it in a terrarium in her room that's filled with, like, rainbow marbles and plastic toys and stuff. It doesn't look very comfortable. I Uh, thought for sure that this was going to come back, the alligator named Ramon. 
What are you talking about? It did. It does. Well, no, I. But <laughs> well, I don't want to get into spoilers. But she never sees it. Right. She never once yeah. sees the I, giant alligator. I definitely wanted for this alligator to have some identifying mark. Yeah. So that there could be some sort of reunion. Yeah. yeah. So that right. at the end she could be like, oh my God, this slash on its tail. I did that with my curling iron oh, on God. accident. Like just something like that. A radio announcement the next day is announcing the the riots at the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago to let us know where and when we are. A guy storms into the house while Marissa is at school. And he picks up the baby gator and flushes it down the toilet in anger. I guess he like heard through the grapevine that she got a baby alligator. And he's like, no daughter of mine. And just burst into the house and threw it away. Yeah, it really bothered me that it didn't really motivate this action at yeah, all. There's no explanation for it. And that seems to be all he does before he turns around and leaves the well, house. Well, he says something about like there's alligator turds in the laundry basket. But it's like, but this alligator seems like it's in the cage. Yeah. Like, uh, like even except if she, for the few hours a day she leaves it in the laundry basket. Yeah. It's like <laughs> even if she let it out, I don't think she would let it out unsupervised. But, uh, but another woman in the house. I don't think it's. Is it the mom or is it like? It's, it's a mother figure. Okay. I couldn't tell who it was, but she. It's her mom. She, she says comes back later. Well, I know the mom comes back later. I don't remember if it was the same actress. I thought this might have been like a housekeeper or something. No, cause... I'm pretty sure it's the same actress. Okay, maybe it is. But she says, what are we going to tell Marissa? And he says... Did tell her we found it dead like we did with a hamster. Does this mean that the hamsters didn't die? Did he also flush the hamsters? <laughs> no. Knowing the film's general premise, I will wait for mutated hamsters to save the day moving forward. <laughs> we cut to 12 years later. So that makes it 1980. Robert Forster is a cop buying a dog. His previous dog was stolen from in front of a store. And uh, when he says this, the guy at the pet shop looks weirdly guilty about yeah. it. The pet shop owner tries to sympathize with him and also with his male pattern baldness. And Forster is like, why are we talking about this? Like, t- can't stop touching his head after he says it. Later at a water treatment plant, a team is retrieving a human arm that appears to have been bitten off. They also make mention of the remains of a Lhasa Apso found earlier in the day. And the dog's owner shows up to speak with the officers and to identify the body. I, um, I really like that the chief of police is involved in this murder, like this this body part finding. Like yeah. he came all the way down here, and that he's like working with Robert Forrester's character of David uh, David Madison. I like that he's so hands on. Yeah, because like usually it's like the chief wants to see. It's like oh no. You know, but he's like, no, the chief is there. He's like there in like every scene. Well, yeah, you find a, a disembodied arm, you're gonna want to see it in person anyway. It's just you one think of those. The chief cases. of police of Chicago has other There's things. Plenty to of do. arms on his desk. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the the guy at the water treatment plant says they found a toe once and were somehow able to ID the Vic, but they never found anything else. Who keeps their toe prints on file? Like, wh- how how do you identify a person from just the toe? Oh, I was gonna get really dark with this, but I won't. <laughs> But Forster's comment is, It's been a pretty small casket. <laughs> like they let a coffin just for the toe. There are only three Lhasa Opsos registered in the state somehow. And so the owner is here at the back of a car IDing the dog. But she says, The markings are all identical, but this is for sure not my dog because it's, you know, it's the size of a golden retriever or like even larger. And uh, a Lhasa Opso is like a little purse dog. I'm not sure how they decided that that was the breed before they called this woman because they, the corpse is huge. Mm-hmm. The woman holds up a tiny sweater and she says, this fit the dog when it escaped a few months ago. So the dog's been missing for months. It could have grown since then. Who knows? Uh, also, uh, point of note that the dog's larynx had been cut. Right. 
the pet shop owner finds a golden retriever walking unattended but with a collar and throws it in the back of his van and then he takes a truck full of animals to an experimental lab where a scientist tells him that he needs to bring more puppies that these dogs are not cute enough and he needs to be murdering cuter animals for his science uh the shop owner says that he's a little worried because a cop came by the store today and he thinks they might be onto this illegal animal trafficking operation so the shop owner in addition to selling some dogs also routinely steals dogs and sells them to this lab for experiments this entire premise was very upsetting to yeah. me yeah yeah i did not like especially it. when we get into forster talking with them you're not allowed to murder dogs in movies no I'm sorry that's a rule it's it's uh you know blake edwards screenwriting books say rescue the cat or save the cat basically the same thing for dogs i would think forster talks with a guy working in the sewers about his coworker who is missing, uh, likely the owner of the arm, and the coworker's name is Ed Norton, which is a weird choice for the character, uh, even before the actor we recognize as Ed Norton, because there was a character on The Honeymooners, played by Art Carney, who was a sewer worker named Ed Norton. Um, so this is clearly a reference to that, unless this is a direct sequel to The Honeymooners, <laughs> and Art Carney has been eaten by an alligator. <laughs> Shop owner pushes a shopping cart into a drainage channel off the L.A. River and drops a few bags of dead animals from the lab. So in addition to providing animals, he's also in charge of disposing them so there's not uh, dead animals in their garbage, I suppose. Based on this guy's appearance and what he's wearing, I don't think he's getting paid enough. Yeah, that's probably true, unless he's just really thrifty. But also he's very – because he's very thorough. Like he goes all the way deep inside this flood channel. Like he he just left them – like 10 feet from this opening but he he goes really far in there yeah and uh the sound of these bags hitting the ground wakes up this alligator that we see in the sewers and uh, one of the dog corpses lands on the side of the sewer not completely in the water Ugh, so that, we, <laughs> yeah. sorry that the, the meat slapping sound when that dog <laughs> yeah. hit was really not what i wanted to hear yeah so he has to climb down this ladder and sort of kick it off into the water this seems less desirable than just tossing them in a dump because these animals will be floating directly to a treatment plant where cops are already finding them. But when he gets down into the stream to try and unblock the tube so that the corpses can more easily float through, he's very quickly attacked by the waiting alligator. Back at the treatment plant, we find another limb, but it's not from the same guy as the arm because he cuts his nails different, though people might conceivably cut their fingers and toenails differently. I don't know. He was wearing alligator wingtips, which Forster comments are not regulation sewer worker uniform, so this guy was probably not an employee underground. They also found kitty litter in the boot, which the guy says that he thinks this might be a cat freak, which is like, or just, you know, a cat owner in yeah. general. All cat owners are cat freaks. Yeah. Another Look worker. You, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> another worker hooks a shirt out of the water, and Forster sees it and basically instantly recognizes it as the pet shop owner's shirt. Now, can you explain to me why he goes to the lab here? Um, what is the clue that leads him to the lab? Because uh, immediately he's interviewing the scientist. Uh, yeah, I don't know how, how we got here. Um, it's because he doesn't find out about the larynx cutting thing until this moment. Yeah, this interview. That, that seems to be the thing that connects them. So for whatever reason, maybe his gut told him, go talk to Slade Labs. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he goes to Slade and uh, he speaks with the same scientist. Yeah, and I was really concerned because it's like, oh my god, the pet store owner's dead. Who's watching after the pets? The pet store. Somebody's got to figure it out. Yeah, yeah. 
like in a week or two <laughs> and probate. No, nah, it's going to be fine. Yeah, he goes to the lab and once he's confirmed that the pet shop owner is the one that died. And the scientist insists that if there were an animal shortage, that it would just mean a suspension of their research, that they wouldn't they wouldn't seek out someone to bring them animals. And he said, it's it's not it's not unheard of that we would stop down on on our research if we didn't have enough animals to do the experiments. He asks if it's possible that a dog could grow very fast or to escape this lab, and both answers are no. Forster observes that the dogs here are awful quiet. We cut the larynx when they first come in. It uh, helps keep the noise level down. And the scientist stupidly admits to performing a provable larynx surgery on all animals that have been trafficked through this lab, basically admitting to any corpse they find moving forward. I'm sure this will come back to bite him. The scientist's boss sits him down. This is the owner of Slade. Maybe it's Slade himself. I believe it is Slade. He sits him down to verify that there's no way the lab can be held liable for what they're doing. He seems mostly concerned with bad press because he seems to have the government side of it handled. And he also takes a very uncomfortable power stance in in his conversation where he comes really close. Like Essentially, Arthur Helms is sitting in a chair in front of this guy's desk, but then Slade sits on the desk really close to him like yeah. with his legs between helms's legs like like you, you look up at me while i'm here cradling you we do learn later that these characters have something of a relationship so it's not like they're just employer employee right still uncomfortably close yes so now the robert forster character uh detective david madison is sent in front of the press to discuss this case and he masterfully avoids all their questions and basically tells them that because of L.A.'s sewer system, which is Chicago's in the movie, that the bodies could have been dumped almost anywhere to end up where they did. So there's really no telling where they came from and that the bodies were dismembered, but they're awaiting a laboratory to confirm the cause of death. And when he's pressed for a motive in the killings, which he already avoided confirming were murders, he said, Raise newspaper circulation. Look, I can't do this. <laughs> like he's calling out the reporters for having committed the murders. A member of the press asks if he's the same Officer Madison who lost a partner in the Hotel Baldwin incident in St. Louis. He confirms that he is. Apparently his partner was shot in an incident prior to joining this department. After he leaves the presser, a fellow officer... David, you can't let that Baldwin Hotel thing throw you. Now that was five years ago and nobody blames you. And he says, well, tell that to the press. Madison asks for a partner to help him investigate the sewers where this might have come from, and everybody looks away as though they all blame him for his partner's death. Yeah. But a younger kid says he'll go, and it's that house fixer-upper kid from The Hearse who uh, we learned in that movie doesn't... He he seems to be the only person who will trust you when everyone else Mm -hmm. doesn't. Also... Things don't always go his way. <laughs> no, not especially. Another cop gives him shit about his hairline on his way out of the station. And then suddenly we're introduced to a crazy looking dude with a big box under his shirt. He takes credit for all the murders. And when the cops aren't taking him seriously, he presents a time bomb from under his shirt. And the young cop tries to draw a gun, but Madison tells him to stand down. I assume because he doesn't believe it's a bomb or maybe they, they, they have a history with this crazy guy. But he says that he has orders to blow the station and that they came from a radio broadcast. And then he starts to sing the chorus of Donna Summers on the radio, which we had earlier this year as the theme for Foxes, thanks to Giorgio Moroder's pop-infused composition work. Madison tries to leave, pretending not to believe what's going on, and suddenly everyone is grabbing the crazy guy from different angles. And they diffuse what turns out to just be a radio on his chest. 
he seems too crazy to have made this convincing a bomb mm-hmm. but then there's a lot of different kinds of crazy so in the sewer tunnels the young cop finally realizes that he should have asked why madison left st louis it's difficult to understand some of their dialogue here because the tunnel is very echoey and this is clearly the audio from set it seems like this kid trusts him they wander into an apparently breathable methane pocket where madison urges him not to light any matches here they step into a hole in the wall to look down below and madison tosses a loose brick into the water to see how far down it is i guess but as he steps away he realizes kelly the younger cop is gone he's silently disappeared and he starts moving around to try and track the kid down he's mostly finding a lot of rats Uh, madison inspects a smaller tunnel with something blocking it it looks like maybe the same tunnel that the pet shop owner was trying to dislodge when a pov is suddenly sneaking up quickly behind him and kelly the younger cop just grabs his ass yeah i don't know why you surprises him somebody in the sewer Um, there's not a lot of reason to do that yeah especially this guy that you barely know who's like a senior officer at the (laughs) station it's weird standing up very quickly madison knocks his head against the concrete ceiling of this small tunnel he seems to have found a small lantern and i can't tell was it still on when he found it no it was it was definitely off but because for some reason they think oh that it's clear that someone was here recently it's like couldn't that have been here for a long time yeah it's not like a brand new lantern or anything as they inspect the sewer blueprint again we get a glimpse of an enormous alligator in an errant flashlight beam over their shoulder and it slowly turns to face them before we lose it in the darkness again coming around a corner kelly comes face to face with the monster and fires multiple shots into its mouth before turning to run yeah he's really quick on the draw yeah uh the gator is chasing them full speed down this tunnel like as fast as they can run can gators actually go that fast they can they can go really fast that's why you have to go serpentine because they can't turn very quick but they can charge at you real quick this is good this is good valuable information for our listeners serpentine movements when you're being chased by alligators sewer alligators specifically (laughs) they get to a ladder up to a manhole cover and madison climbs to the top but he can't get it open and he watches in horror as the monster clamps down on kelly's legs and just rips him away below and we dip to white before we uh, wake up with Madison in a hospital, having lost two partners now, likely flying solo for the remainder of this adventure. From his nurse and boss's comments, it seems like everyone thinks he's just crazy, like he came out of this manhole cover shouting about an alligator, and they all think that he's insane. The shitty reporter from yesterday rubs it in again that now he's two partners down. A biologist tells him that the alligator he's describing is impossibly large. An alligator half that size would starve in a week. There's no sunlight. There are toxic fluids and gases, not to mention the question of how it got there in the first place. I was already certain that this was Marissa from the from the get-go. Yeah. I was like, this has to be the girl, right? There's no reason we would show a girl and then skip 12 years and then not have it be the girl unless it's just the alligator. He asks if he can borrow her book about alligators from her lab, and she says, yeah, sure, you can keep it. As they're driving away, he's talking with his chief, and he says, look, she's a kid. She lives with snakes. What did you expect? And then the chief says, I didn't say she was normal. I said she had the word on alligators. (laughs) (laughs) The reporter apparently wrote a front page story about Madison's repeat partner loss. And his boss reads it aloud in the car. When they get back to the station, the fellow officers are also reading it in the locker room. Here we see a poster over someone's shoulder on the wall that says, Moving machinery is dangerous, with an illustration of these sharp mechanical gears coincidentally resembling an alligator's head and teeth Mm -hmm. Uh, when he opens his locker he's greeted with a toy alligator that's been like taped to the door of the locker 
but it swings out at him. Apparently, this station likes to prank cops when their partners die, like within 12 hours. This is like a funny thing they do. It, it's it's very similar to like most movies where they're when the lead character is in disbelief. They always put something in similar, like a right in to their, mock in their, them into the mock them. Yeah, like a. Uh, was it? Uh, I was like in Batman when they have uh, Alexander Knox when they're showing the the drawing that they did of the Batman. It's a guy in a it's a bat in a suit. Yeah. <laughs> the reporter in a hospital now uh, is extracting Madison's medical record from a very gabby nurse. Yeah, I was really bothered like, by this. I get that like HIPAA didn't exist in 1980, but still, I feel like there was some sort of like doctor patient privilege that was still generally respected before there were laws against this. Yeah. And she also, she says something along the lines of he's on a lot of meds. And then the reporter's like, what are meds? Medication. Mm. And all, yeah, but IMDb Trivia says that meds was not a popular term at the time. And it's like, in 1980, I'm pretty sure people knew what meds meant. Yeah. Well, I thought it was more like him just sort of being sly, like, Playing oh, dumb. I'm going to play dumb and you're going to feel like an expert. So you're going to tell me more than you intend to. It still jumps out in, in a scene where you're just like. What? Why is he? Why did? Would he even say that? There's no way that she would buy that he didn't know that. Well, and to me, it's almost like the nurse is defending what David was saying in the sense that he was on a lot of meds. He could have. He could have said that he saw Jesus. You know. For yeah. All, you know, she didn't say this, but I mean, it's my opinion. But uh, I think she was saying she doesn't like, realize she's digging a deeper hole for him. She's yeah. trying to get him out of it. He learns about Madison's claim of alligators in the sewers, and he decides to head down there himself. Uh, because he's that confident that Madison is just insane. So he goes to... But the... what does he expect to find, though? Because if he thinks he's crazy, exactly. he will find nothing. And yeah. if he thinks, and if he's not crazy, he's going to find an alligator. Both of these are there's, terrible reasons to go to the sewer. There's other terrible options here, too. <laughs> so he's going to where the, all the disembodied limbs keep floating away from. For all he knows, Madison is a serial killer. Yeah. Like, he thinks this guy's crazy, and he's been there when all these other people are dying. So really, the best case scenario is you find an enormous alligator. Because otherwise, you're just going to get killed by this guy. But he finds a pile of dead dogs, and he gets photos of that. He gets a photo of the pet shop guy's demolished shopping cart, and then suddenly Ramon starts peeking on him, and we get that POV shot again, and hopefully Kelly is not about to goose this guy. (laughs) Nope, it's Ramon. Uh, Luckily, the reporter doesn't stop taking pictures for the entire attack, and back at home, Madison is reading a book from Dr. Kendall's lab, while his newly adopted dog tries to back out of a Chinese food box on the carpet. Uh, closing the book, he realizes that Dr. Kendall herself was the author. So when she said, oh, you, you can have that book, she was actually tricking him into taking her book home because she needed the sales. Uh, but here we see a first name, too, Marissa, confirming my suspicion. He gets a call that the reporter is dead, and he's secretly ecstatic, but it doesn't show. <laughs> I thought for sure this was going to be uh, you know, the reporter's dead. Where were you last night? Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, like, it was going to be another nightmare situation. Yeah. But well, no, it's just like, he's dead. But a similar thing happens in Jaws where they get the photographs of the teeth and it's like an argument in his favor, right? Well, it was in Jaws 2. But oh, yeah. Jaws 2. Okay. Yeah, they, they get, um, it's a, the a diver is taking photographs and um, it's of the eye of the shark. Yeah. But no one in, in the council seems to see it, even though it's the same council from the previous movie. Yeah. It's like, how can you not see that there is a shark's eyeball in this photo? <laughs> At the station, the chief hands Madison Kemp's camera, and another guy comes out with the developed photos of an obvious alligator. 
Well, he'll make the front page anyway. That's all he really wanted. But he already made the front page last week with the report about you killing two partners. Like, seems like this guy's on the front page pretty often. I don't think this was like a bucket list situation. I was actually kind of surprised that this movie went there because they spent so long focused on not believing him. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. so much of the movie was about, you know, th- this isn't possible. You are dumb. You're crazy. And then, like, just suddenly, okay, now we all believe you. Either you need to carry this storyline throughout and have it be problematic for longer or you probably shouldn't have hung on it for a third of the movie. Well, they tried to go both ways with it because even now that they have the photographic evidence, they try to turn it around and make him look crazy again after that. Yeah. And it's like, well, no, you already, like, you decided that it was true that he didn't make the thing up. But also, these pictures were taken so close up, it could have been a toy alligator for all you know. Like, maybe he killed this guy in the sewers and he took a bunch of pictures of a toy. Like, I don't know. So now the headline above uh, a hand trapped in an alligator's jaw reads, Reporter takes pics of own killer with the smaller headline, Beast stalks the city sewers. Uh, Madison channel surfs through five news reports on alligator attacks that he is in charge of investigating in search of an attractive woman, apparently, because he stops on an interview of Marissa, who now appears to confirm his alligator diagnosis. Uh, She still believes that it's a regular-sized alligator, maybe smaller than regular, dwarfed by the lack of sun. It's hard to tell from a few hastily snapped photos. I (laughs) I don't know if they were hastily snapped. (laughs) I would be doing it pretty hastily if I I was getting eaten at the time. They were accidentally snapped. I don't know that they were hastily snapped. As he flips through maps, he uncovers a potentially second alligator toy. I thought it was the same one, but you said that it's... It didn't look the same to me. The first one... So maybe they stuffed another toy in in his junk that he took home? Maybe he's just collecting crappy alligator toys now. Or maybe he's had them this whole time, and that's where his psychosis started. Suddenly we see SWAT teams storming the sewers, uh, really wishing at this point that Ramon had an identifying marker so that Marissa would be able to recognize her childhood friend Mm -hmm. that her dad told her was dead 12 years ago. Uh, We're getting sandbags and barbed wire set up to stop a 50-foot alligator that earlier ate live rounds being fired from a cop gun. Dr. Kendall arrives on the scene as Madison is explaining the plan to force the alligator out of a specific path. She seems to think that they can corner it because she's still expecting a tiny alligator. Several units check in as they're moving through parallel tunnels to flush the gator out, but we see Ramon hiding as they go by. So they're and, they're missing it already. And, and we get a couple of like red herrings of like, Hey, Unit 2 isn't checking in. I've been trying them all, you know, like right. not, we can't get a hold of them. And I was like, uh-oh, like this is how it's going to go. Like like another unit's going to be going down. I was like, no. But it's just the concrete. It's making it harder to talk. Madison calls her a kid, and she says she's not a kid, to which he replies, Everybody younger than me is a kid. The plan doesn't appear to work. <laughs> Makes it very problematic to date. <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm dating this new kid. She's great. The plan doesn't work. Uh, The men complete the tunnel and exit the sewer without any sign of an alligator. Somehow this cancels out the photographic evidence and everyone thinks Madison's crazy again and that the pictures just don't exist. And also those two people who died didn't die. Yeah, they're still alive. Everybody's fine. And he's just crazy. He didn't didn't even actually have a partner, so he didn't lose anyone down there. The cops pass a street baseball game on their way back to the station. And shortly after they pass, the gator just bursts up through the sidewalk and starts running through the neighborhood. It's like full-on Kool-Aid man just erupting. First they do this terrible effect of just like shaking the frame of the camera. It's like, oh, that's pretty bad. And then you get the stretchy concrete floor. Yeah. 
but like the kids are getting way too close. Yeah. I'm like, ah, this <laughs> get out of there. Why are you hanging around? Yeah. Um, an arriving police car swerves to avoid the running kids and then slams full speed into a parked car, setting both cars on fire. And while he's trying to climb out of the patrol car, he gets his leg chomped off by the alligator. Joey, one of the kids in the street baseball game, runs inside his house to grab a knife from his kitchen while his mom is ignoring his his terrified pleas. I mean, not only is your kid running in and yelling at you, but he grabbed a knife. Yeah. Maybe pay left. attention. And she's just like, oh, that's one of my good knives. Come back here. Like, it's are you like, going to murder someone? <laughs> what is happening? And she's like, this kid is driving me nuts. It's like, yeah. What? No, this kid is. Hang up. (laughs) Outside, we see Dr. Kendall is speaking with Joey, and he corroborates uh, for Dr. Kendall that the alligator was about the length of an El Dorado plus a tail. Right? That was what he said? Yeah. We cut to them just floating around Echo Park Lake in boats because they assume that it went into the lake, and they're just setting off charges, just blindly throwing explosives into the lake and setting them off. Uh, hoping to just kill the gator by sheer chance. Madison and Kendall on the sidelines are being replaced with a big game hunter who they called in. This is Colonel Brock. Ash and Misty. (laughs) Yeah. People are selling gator toys and live gators outside the lake because they're trying to make this into a tourist attraction suddenly. I don't know how they got here so fast. They literally just decided to set off bombs in this lake. The game hunter flirts with a reporter who's trying to get information on the alligator and madison offers kendall an iguana in exchange for some science information they look at cells of the dead lhasa apso under a microscope and they notice mutations in the pituitary gland which is what causes extreme growth specifically in people with like like giants you know like people that have like growth hormone problems Mm -hmm. that just keep growing their whole lives it's usually something with the pituitary gland she says that the dark blue globules uh, indicate that it's been bombarded with some sort of hormone derivative. Madison prays out loud that the alligator will just die of cancer. The game hunter finds a pile of gator shit in an alley. I guess it's out of the water again. We suddenly see the alligator sunbathing as it's it's wandered into a residential neighborhood and climbed into the pool in their backyard. Madison heads back to Slade Medical, and here they admit that some chemical tests can lead to an insatiable appetite uh, which is just a secondary side effect of the extreme growth situation the owner of slade puts in a call and by the time madison gets back to the station he finds out he's losing his badge (laughs) so he called the mayor and he said call the police chief and he and the police chief said hey you don't work here anymore on his way out of the station he pops into the evidence locker to take the fake time bomb from earlier and also a real bomb (laughs) (laughs) That's uh, convenient. Yeah. It's, the, well, it's also convenient that you can use a fake bomb to make a real bomb if you just add dynamite. Yeah. It's like, wasn't this a radio? Didn't we determine this was just a radio? I mean, yeah. I guess it had a clock function, but it doesn't have like a triggering mechanism, well, does it? Or well, I guess you set it to the alarm? Yeah. So, the, yeah, when the timer count counted down, they, they didn't get the... When they were trying to disarm the bomber, they couldn't do it. So when the countdown reached zero, the radio came on. Right. Uh, and so I guess he's just saying, hey, I'll just replace the radio co- portion with this dynamite. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's how that works. Yeah. I, I don't know how much electrical charge it takes to ignite dynamite. I imagine... Enough for a spark, I would guess. Yeah. Madison tells Dr. Kendall that he was fired, and she agrees to team up and hunt down the alligator in a small bite-sized group. 
he asks if she's ever had any boyfriends weirdly and she starts to just go through her relationship history while they're hunting the alligator in the sewer um, they also recruit Callan. Yeah, the, the guy that was talking to them about his coworker like, earlier. Dude, why would this guy volunteer to go into the sewer when they absolutely know there's a gator down there? Yeah, it's weird. Madison advises them to split up insanely. Yeah. I wonder which of these three is about to get eaten. The leading man, the leading lady, or what's his name? <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Kendall yanks a dog collar out of a wall and suddenly like a whole dog carcass falls out of it toward her we cut from the sewers i I liked your observation here where you're like how did the alligator get this big if he's only eating parts of these dogs yeah it's just taking like one bite of each Uh, also i was just horrified by this moment because she falls full body backwards into the water yes yeah and it gets all over her face and then at one point she licks her lips it's like Uh, no god you you have so many like you like you're gonna get mercy you have covid a thousand right now Oh, also when he comes like, and you know checks on her it's like are you okay she's like, yeah i'm fine I'm like no no you're not, no, you're not. <laughs> get it up, that, get that, it up. that is not gray water that is the blackest of black water <laughs> <laughs> we cut from the sewers to mr slade organizing what looks like a wedding reception Yay. i feel like this is where you step into full satire mode where you're like okay All i right. get it i, I see that it's a joke yes this part was cheesy and well anticipated yeah the moment i saw and it's, that you know so it's excited. like oh my daughter's big day it's, it's yeah. very clear right away uh, this the day of my daughter's yes wedding. uh slade lectures the mayor for holding up products that he's worried about getting tracked back to the company he's basically advising the mayor to not let anyone look too closely at this alligator for fear of implicating slade and costing the mayor his precious donation money that he needs to get reelected. Slade introduces his future son-in-law, Arthur Hill, and this is his number one boy, the asshole scientist from Slade Enterprises, who's been hitting mute on all of the stolen dogs in town. So after they hunted down the alligator and found nothing, Dr. Kendall decided she's going to come back to Madison's home, and she calls her mom from there, who I guess she lives with, and her mom is very excited about her daughter finally getting laid. We cut to... The darkest scene in this whole movie. It's so sad and dark compared to everything else. We're at a pirate-themed children's birthday party. The gator had found that nice pool in the backyard, and a pair of older brothers blindfold their younger sibling to make him walk the plank into their pool. But just before he reaches the tip of the diving board, their mom turns on the pool lights, and the kid can see the gator in the pool underneath his blindfold and starts freaking out, but his brothers don't know why he's screaming, and they think he's just scared of the water, and they think it's funny. So they push him into the pool, and then the gator swallows the kid whole. Well, it wasn't totally whole. There's a lot of blood in That's that pool. That's true. Yeah, I guess there was at least a bite. There's some chomping going on. But still, it was just like, they're not going to kill this kid, yeah, right? Yeah, That's I, so totally, crazy. Yeah, I, totally I, uh, yeah, my big, my all caps, oh fuck, in my nose. <laughs> Uh, that was like so much darker than I expected this film to go anywhere. Well, because and and like it's worse because the kid sees it. Like it'd be like one thing like if the kid went into the pool blind. Like yeah, like but also because his, his brothers did it. Yeah, yeah, it's their fault. Yeah, and they're gonna and live he, with that for the rest of their lives. And he was scrambling and screaming for his life before they killed him. Yep. Ugh, so dark. Back at Madison's place, above his bed, we see a poster for Ramon Santiago, who I guess. Robert Forster was actually a fan of or friend of and he suggested this poster for the wall but it's clearly a reference also to Ramon the alligator and or maybe uh, Ramon the alligator is a reference to this guy oh maybe before they leave for dinner Madison asks hey just so I know are we gonna have sex later and she says yep 
<laughs> and you think like, okay, so sometimes Patrick paraphrases on this show just to be funny, and no, it's that's not actually much... what they said, but that's pretty close to what yeah. they said. Yeah, I'm, I'm lightly paraphrasing. <laughs> Madison tells Marissa the story of his first dead partner because what else gets a girl in the mood? His partner was killed while he thought he had a gun trained on him, but it turned out the guy that was holding him up had a roll of pennies, and the other guy had a gun. So he can't forgive himself because he assumed these pennies were a gun and he let his partner get shot. Well, but not only that, the neither of them actually had a gun when they went in. They took his gun. So his partner got killed with his own gun. Oh, okay. Which is probably why everyone's like, nah, I'm going to hang out here at the station. And I made 50 cents. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's a cheap gun. She plays with his hair a little bit, and he brings up his baldness again and says he's very sensitive about it. Apparently, all these jokes about the the male pattern baldness were Forster's idea to bring they up in the have scene. To be. Yeah, because mm-hmm. the whole time I was like, "Wow, he's really going along with this." Like, I feel like that would be impossible as a screenwriter to be like, "Hey, is it cool if we make fun of how you look?" Like, <laughs> occasionally in the movie, but I guess he was pretty sensitive about it at the time, so he's like. I don't want to go through this whole movie and have people just see this going on and have me not comment on it. So can we just make a joke about it every once in a while? Wow. And uh, the joke carries through the movie Jackie Brown because that's the whole reason that Tarantino put him in the movie is because he's basically playing the same character from this movie. And so they do a lot of male pattern baldness jokes in that movie too, which are really the only two like major instances of him doing that in a movie. So it's clearly a reference to this. The trophy hunter Brock hires a group of children to help him uh, track the gator through the alleys of the city because he doesn't really know his way around. Yeah. Once again, he's not Patrick is not being funny. They are no, literal. They're teens. like fourteen and fifteen year old yeah. kids. Well, but it's also pretty offensive because he talks about how he would like go on a safari and hire the locals. Yeah, you know, and like the natives to wherever he's on safari. So well, you got to do it. This is his equivalent to that. Yeah, these are the locals. Um, so he asks them to help track this gator because he doesn't know where alleys lead. And we see Ramon hiding in a pile of garbage. Brock sees the gator's shadow as he's moving down the alley and he drops his flask in surprise because he's just getting sauced on the job. Once, uh, once Ramon finally snaps, he makes very quick work of Brock. Mm-hmm. Um, he just marches forward and just sucks him right in it. And he takes a few rifle shots to the face, but he takes him like a champ. And, uh, the kids that were quote unquote helping him uh, try to fire the gun, but I guess it's out of bullets or jammed. And so they end up dropping the gun and just running away. So we don't murder any more children in this movie. That's nice. At a diner, a pair of cops enter and Madison is there having dinner with Dr. Kendall and they tell him what happened. Dr. Kendall says, I understand how you must feel. And Madison says, don't understand me so quick. Which just seems like kind of a forced fight between the two of them but uh she's pretty upset about it and she leaves and he chases her out with mom will be waiting to just pick on her for not affording uh an independent lifestyle because she knows a lot about alligators instead of like a real job you know you don't know if that's why she lives with her mom maybe her mom's crazy and needs help because we find no, out later her mom that is her not mom crazy is totally at all crazy her mom is the least crazy her person i've ever definitely met definitely real crazy uh he has a nightmare flashback to kelly's death in black and red he wakes very loudly shouting Kelly in his apartment at a television that's playing an old dinosaur movie that features reptiles as dinosaurs <laughs> where they just sort of put like clay molds on a reptile to give it frills and 
there, that's a Triceratops now with a long lizard tongue. He decides that he's going to go talk to Dr. Kendall again. So he goes to her house and we just cut immediately to him sitting in her kitchen with her mom around a dinner table. How does he even know where she lives? I don't know. He's a cop. I guess he's picked her up before. He's not a cop anymore. (laughs) But he still has the detective skills. He's going to cop a feel, if you know what I mean. I'm not sure if you know what I mean, but he's going to grow up her. Uh, Dr. Kendall's mother tells him that she has an evil eye. And she makes him guess which one it is, covering them one at a time until she makes a blatantly evil face for the second (laughs) eye, which is a great joke. And I love it. Dr. Kendall finally enters in a robe and they are immediately having sex again. (laughs) Like they just wander out of the room to have sex. I I love I love her her flirt line of want to see my rock collection. I don't know what that's uh, a euphemism for. I I just think it's it's a reference to her being a nerd. Yeah. It's like come upstairs because see my rock collection. It would make more sense coming from him, though. But he's not a nerd. She, she, he, he, we're establishing that she's the nerd. Yes. All right. The next day they head back. <laughs> for me, it was yep. clear. Yeah. It was totally clear. No, no, it's totally very obvious. Clear, but I thought there should be a double entendre of whatever yeah. she's offering to show him. Just for that joke, I dumped sand in my crotch. <laughs> you like it? No. Or maybe she's looking for something equally as hard to add to her yeah. collection. <laughs> I need something else to throw in the tumbler. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's what I call my vagina. <laughs> Um, (laughs) the next day they head back out on the hunt and it looks like they're driving down Pleasant Valley Road by the Camarillo Airport kind of teams of cops on boats are training automatic weapons on the alligator as it surfaces in a man-made waterway they fire on it repeatedly before it dives and even at this point I was like there's no way they're going to lose this thing again this Mm -hmm. is ridiculous if they lose it at this point it surfaces again mere feet away and they charge it with their boat instead of shooting at it uh, for no apparent reason. I don't know what the plan was here. Yeah. This one of the men weird. one of the men pulls out a grenade from a big box of grenades and he pulls the pin just before they ramp off of the alligator. Yeah. Um I mean is this supposed are they jumping the shark here like literally trying to like yeah, it, jump over the alligator? It was visible for 30 seconds before they hit it. So yeah. it's weird that they ramped off of it. But in the air, he drops the live grenade into the box with all the other grenades, which don't match. Like, none of these are the same grenade. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It's just a miscellaneous grenade prop box. Um, And the whole ship, obviously, is blown sky high, killing everyone aboard except for the reckless guy with the grenade who lands in the middle of the river. And a second speedboat races up to pull him out. But they show up seconds too late, and it costs him a couple legs. Uh, He's got some below-the-knee amputations going on. Chief Shouty shouts more. (laughs) <laughs> uh, unnecessarily into a radio the wedding reception at slade's place is underway the mayor weirdly interrupts slade's barbecue lesson repeatedly <laughs> I, I, I love the look on the mayor's face like he's he's so eagerly awaiting this story that he's making mental notes as he's talking it's like yeah you, you use hickory hickory okay okay you, you do a lot of that okay and he just keeps jumping in with these words and slade could not be more obvious with the signals that he's sending like I'm hitting on this girl. Stop talking to me. Stop interrupting my story. I thought he was like trying to tell him about like, oh, there's police on the way or something like that. But he's just, no, he's literally just wants to be a part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ramon shows up fashionably late to the party. Everyone is screaming and freaking out and tripping over each other. 
the gator chomps down on a woman in a full French maid's outfit yeah. uh, who is delivering drinks around this party. She disappears bloodily into Ramon's yeah, gullet. It's real. That's also really horrifying. Yeah. These people are being swallowed whole. Yeah, that's what happened to Brock, too. He just went right down. The bride is knocked into the pool by rioting party goers. And see, I was so excited for everyone to get in the pool. I was like, oh, man, this pool scene's going to go crazy. Yeah, this, this is going to be dark red water. No doesn't happen yeah a guy fires the smallest gun yet at the biggest gator anyone's ever seen ramon flies under tables after people he throws a full table high into the air he's tossing guests back with wax of his tails he sends one flying right through the wedding cake slade slams shut his limousine and locks the door before the mayor can get in stranding him as gator bait in the yard the groom gets munched um he's sideways in the mouth though he doesn't get swallowed whole which i don't know i guess i would rather get swallowed whole then crunched in half i don't know it's a good question me the mayor gets eaten also he can't find another car to hide in and slade even though he's in his protective limousine uh he it's just getting bashed to pieces by the tail of this alligator like the alligator knows very clearly what it's doing yeah and it literally just crushes this thing tighter than a uh, compactor at a junkyard well and and even when slade got in and locked the door and the alligator was coming my notice here why isn't the driver driving yeah as soon as the door was closed that car should have been in motion yeah but uh but he doesn't and this limousine gets smashed completely flat and uh slade juice just starts dribbling out of the bottom madison and dr kendall arrive at the gate apparently no one has managed to leave this party because the guy at the gate has no idea that anything is amiss mm-hmm. and he's like can i see your invitations please and they point a gun in his face and he's like oh go right in then i'm not getting paid <laughs> to like keep criminals out or anything that's not my job wait no that is my job shit come back they determine that the gator has escaped back into the sewer madison heads back down with another flashlight and tiny gun impossibly madison climbs down the same first ladder that the pet shop owner climbed down but from a manhole cover instead of going in through like a tunnel off of Mm -hmm. the waterway it doesn't make any sense but we're using the same location again madison immediately runs into ramon and fires several shots at him he puts on a gas mask and starts to head back through the methane cloud intending to kill this gator with an explosion so he really didn't need the dynamite i guess he's just looking to enhance the explosion i guess enhance Uh, he fumbles through his backpack for the time bomb which uh, he sets for two minutes before ramon uses tail whip and it's super effective (laughs) (laughs) my my, my concern with like with like setting a timer when you already have the dynamite connected is that it starts at zero yeah and i was like uh, like just powering it on sets the bomb off yeah i was like i was like (laughs) set it for two minutes then connect the dynamite then start the timer (laughs) yeah right as he starts to lift the manhole cover a car pulls up on top of it dr kennel sees this from above and after a fruitless argument she shoves the woman out of the driver's seat to move the car free so that madison can uh, get out of this hole and the bomb just tears ramon to shreds yeah and all the manhole covers nearby are getting blasted into the sky cars are exploding if they're parked on top of them in the aftermath chief shouty tells him that everything's going to be okay madison threatens to set him up with dr kendall's mother i wanted more from him in response to this he's just like what what are you talking i wanted to be like what does she look like like <laughs> like he's kind of into it but uh, they look back down into the sewers and then we get the line we got him we sure did they close it up and back below we see a new baby alligator tumble out of a spout mm-hmm. into the uh, the chemical e sewers i know that uh for the previous episode when you were saying 
on the reading the IMDb synopsis. The IMDb synopsis is incorrect. That's not your fault. But what, what was it? It says that um, the alligator was living off of genetically modified sewer rats. Yeah, it was the dogs. It was dogs. It was puppies. Maybe I guess. But there's rats down there too. But But there's clearly no rats in the lab. Yeah, they're they're not GMO uh, rats. Which is weird because why wouldn't you work with rats? Like that's what laboratories have been doing forever. You want to make ROUSs? Aren't rats closer to humans than dogs? I would think. That's why you work with pigs. Yeah. This was directed by Louis Teague. He directed a couple Stephen King titles, Cujo and Cat's Eye. He directed Jewel of the Nile, which is the the second film, right? Correct. The the not as good one. Yeah. Uh, he also directed Collision Course, which is the original Rush Hour, starring Pat Morita and Jay Leno. That's a buddy cop feature. Wow, I don't uh, ever need to watch that. And what else did he direct? Ooh, Navy Seals. Oh. <laughs> um, uh, the writing credits, we have John Sayles, obviously. His first screenplay was Piranha in 1978. Yeah. Uh, he had three features in 1980. This, Return of the Sakaka 7, which he directed, and Battle Beyond the Stars, which we'll deal with later. Yeah. Uh, next, he'll have the Howling again for Joe Dante next year. He also wrote Brother from Another Planet, Clan of the Cave Bear, and more recently, he wrote the Spiderwick Chronicles movie, which oh. I actually kind of enjoyed. Hmm. Um, the story here was by Frank Ray Pirelli. He has mostly acting credits. He was extras in a lot of random stuff dating back to the mid-50s. Most recently, he was an old Italian man in Wedding Crashers. Coincidentally, this film also features a wedding crasher. Uh, <laughs> Robert Forster was David Madison. He plays Rex Cherry and Jackie Brown, which is sort of a continuation of this character, but with fewer alligators. He was in the last season of Breaking Bad. He was Sheriff Truman on Twin Peaks. He just passed away in October, and our friend Susanna Fogel directed one of his final acting credits in uh, the Apple TV Plus series, the the reboot of The Amazing Stories. But uh, it looks like a cool one. I haven't gotten around to checking it out yet. I don't even know if it's been released yet. By the time this drops, it will have been released. So look up the one about superheroes with Robert Forster. It's probably cool because she's very funny. Robin Riker played Marissa here. Not a lot of credits, really. A lot of one-offs on a bunch of TV shows. She was in a Sliders. She was in a Buffy. She was in a Justified. She was also Brink's mom oh, in God. the Disney Channel movie Brink. So it's a rollerblading or something like that or skateboarding? Yeah, it's been a long time since I watched it over and over and over again. You had again. the poster over your bed for <laughs> Brink. Um, Michael V. Gazzo was Chief Clark or Shouty. He plays Frankie Pentangeli in The Godfather, and he's the Torelli mob boss in Last Action Hero with another Ed Norton, Art Carney. Dean Jagger was Slade. It's pronounced Jagger, but when I saw his name in the opening credits, I said, Hey, Dean Jagger. That's <laughs> what I said, too. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a lesser used Ghostbusters reference. Uh, he won an Oscar for his supporting role as Major Stovall in 12 O'Clock High. He's credited as Prospector in Vanishing Point. He plays Dr. Land in Game of Death. And this was his final film. Sidney Lassick was Gutchel. That's the pet shop owner. Uh, who no one ever calls Gutchel, I don't think. Uh, yeah, I think he says Gutchel's Pet Store at, oh, some, maybe. at some point. But uh, He played Cheswick in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That's the guy that's always playing chess. He played Roscoe in Cool as Ice. And he was also the crystal healer in Man on the Moon, another Milos Forman film. Obviously reused a lot of people from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's the guy who was, at the end of Andy Kaufman's life, cheating him out of money by pretending he was removing the cancer with crystals and stuff. Perry Lang was Kelly. We just had him as Paul Gordon in The Hearse. Uh, mostly TV directing credits, actually. Henry Silva was Brock. 
He appears in both versions of Ocean's Eleven. He's our second Killer Kane this year after Stacy Keach in Ninth Configuration because he played Killer Kane in the 79 Buck Rogers movie. Uh, he's also Ray Vargo in Ghost Dog. And he's got one of those faces like David Leisure in Airplane where I feel like I know him really well from something, but I have no idea what it is. I went over his IMDb page multiple times. If anybody can think of something that's like just a huge title that he did that I might have missed, I know that I recognize him and it's not from Ocean's Eleven. I feel like and it's not something that we've covered either this year. Well, I'm trying to find get a hold of this movie called Johnny Cool from 1963. He's the main character. He's of. the main character. Of, and with Elizabeth Montgomery, and I saw this photo here, I was like, yeah, I want to see this movie. Yeah, it looks awesome. It's like a, a Bond ripoff kind of. Sue Lyon was the, she's credited as ABC Newswoman, but she's wearing an NBC uniform and holding an NBC <laughs> microphone. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping <laughs> he's not going to get this out. <laughs> it was like ABC woman was like, is it going to be someone oh. with the gator chewed up? <laughs> yeah. Later on, she was ABC. Um, no, she's not featured in any of the attack scenes. Uh, this was her final film appearance, but uh, she was Charlotte Goodall in The Night of the Iguana. She's Sylvia Baran in End of the World, and she was Lolita in Kubrick's Lolita. She just passed away the day after last Christmas, actually. Dan Hayes was Meyer. I'm not sure who Meyer is, but he played Adkins the Pimp in Don't Answer the Phone earlier this year. I think that's the guy who was reading the newspaper in the uh, locker room. Uh, But he's the one who had the big Band-Aid on his head Mm -hmm. that they shot a bunch of times. And he's like, what do you mean we? I missed. (laughs) Uh, John F. Goff uh, played Ash. He was Al Williams in The Fog. He was that I think that's the missing guy from the boat that was Janet Lee's husband where they didn't recover his body. And there's also an uncredited Kane Hodder credit as the alligator on this page. But I think that's a mistake because apparently he was the alligator in Alligator 2. And someone may have put it on here thinking that he wasn't credited ah. for playing the alligator. But um, I couldn't find any confirmation that he was in the first one, but he mentioned the second one multiple times. He's probably most famous for his multiple portrayals of Jason Voorhees over the course of that franchise. Uh, I wanted to add uh, a, f- a favorite character actor of mine, uh, Royce D. Applegate, who played Callan, the sewer worker that they hire. Oh, okay. Um, he is he's a he's a Coen Brothers regular. He uh, was one of the main characters on Sequest DSV oh, back okay. in the day, and that's that's when I that's when I first took note of his name, just because his name is Royce D. Applegate. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was an amazing very interesting name. name. I want to mention him, but also more importantly. I want to talk about the composer Craig Huxley. Okay. Because he is an inventor of a crazy musical instrument called the blaster beam. And sounds wonderful. Tell me more. It's it's just a bunch of wire, aluminum wire and a tube that you drag this tube back and forth and you rattle a stick inside of it. It's super crazy and he Does uses, it sound interesting at all? It, it doesn't sounds, sound like it would. It sounds great. <laughs> stuff in star trek the motion picture that's used for v'ger yeah when when um the when you see like the cloud approaching and it goes like that's all the blaster beam stuff did he do that or yeah it's all him he he is like the only one who knows how to play it Um, (laughs) that's what happens when you invent an instrument (laughs) yeah 
so you look no at no tutorials anywhere, hey? <laughs> yeah, you, you so you look at his. He doesn't do many like com- compositions for films, but when you look at all his credits, uh, like Doctor Sleep, Blaster Beam, The Orville, Blaster Beam, Ten Cloverfield Lane, Blaster Beam. That's funny. Uh, he he he's the only one who knows how to play this musical instrument. That's like when I got you the theremin, and we were looking up like, oh, is there a place to get like theremin lessons? And it's like, no, because there's no right there's way no to play right a theremin. <laughs> it's like the opposite of a Reese's peanut butter cup. <laughs> Uh, but I'll send I'll send a couple links to his videos that you can put on the page because um, it's really interesting uh, to watch him play it. Interesting, and uh, that the, the, this thing exists and that people desire it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, he, they had to. You know, I mean, he walked through a picket line, right, to do the sound for this movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he, he couldn't use uh, any union instruments. <laughs> he had to invent one. <laughs> no, no, no! I'm not a musician. See, look. All I have is a bunch of wires and a balloon and a tube. Uh, I don't think it, it was obviously it was, it was used before this, but because um, the motion Star Trek the motion picture it was used in there. Yeah, um, and because he's most, mostly a, a synth artist, but uh, yeah, it's like the black hole Star Trek the motion picture or like some of the earlier blaster beam stuff. But yeah, I enjoyed this film a lot. I thought the effects were great. I think Forster was great. I think everybody else played their part really well. I mean, they were all plugged in as just the cogs in a typical horror movie. Um, but I feel like it was a little bit smarter in the way that it joked about stuff. And the obviously the wedding reception is like the piece de resistance yeah. for the whole thing. But um, I really liked it a lot. Yeah. I think they could have pushed it a little more. I liked it, but I think you could have put that's it, probably true. You could have pushed it over the top more. I think that that's why I say that it doesn't really feel like satire because it's not super extreme. Yeah. yeah it's um the the scene with the kid going into the pool was like oh they're not gonna do this yeah and they did it and i was like oh boy i got like really like ptsd from yeah the- we were pretty bummed <laughs> about it uh oh uh, what uh, i get like really like my heart hurts from watching frank darabont's version of the blob yeah and when that kid goes in and then he's is like screaming melted skeleton is reaching for his friend i was like I cannot believe that they did that. Or when they kill the kid in uh, Doctor Sleep. Oh yeah, that whole scene that, is that, nightmarish. That, that that's intense. So whenever something like that happens in a movie, I I for some reason in real life, no reaction. <laughs> but when it happens in a movie, it's just really psychically damaging. Yeah. Oh no, it's it's it, I I was. It's weird to say that I was glad. <laughs> <laughs> they did it. No. Yep. That's weird, Richard. No, uh, I get on. it. No. It, it needed like, something like that. I was like, okay, this movie's <laughs> this movie's not afraid yeah. of of this. It definitely needed just a dollop of what the fuck, and that was it. Uh, yeah, but I think that it needed more comedy. A couple more dollops of that. More, no, more oh. comedy to counteract it. Honestly. Well, I feel like Forster plays the part brilliantly though and i feel like there's enough comedy in in his character to carry the entire movie because he's the only one who seems to like have a sense of humor about it even though it's all happening to him yeah yeah i don't know i think that everything could have just been pushed a little further maybe maybe not the child murder scene but everything else and maybe it was just harder to sell for you know what is the studio called it didn't it wasn't a major uh group one films probably Mm -hmm. didn't want to like push the uh push the envelope when they were putting this in theaters but uh what do we think on this uh up or down jess yeah i'm, I'm still gonna give it an up yeah yeah that's definitely an up for me yeah oh yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna give it an up I, and 
and usually like my criteria obviously is like do what i recommend this movie to people and i can't think of that there's too many people i would recommend it to but definitely some yeah that i would i feel like i would definitely include it if i was going to do a marathon with like some of those like grizzly and this or piranha and this mm-hmm. um i think it'd be it'd be a fun marathon situation um letterboxed what are we looking at guys so i'm gonna put it um gosh i think that this is it's above windows so it's, it makes the threshold here um it's actually a little ways above it i'm gonna put it below the last flight of noah's ark but above najinsky okay uh i am also putting this above windows and it's pretty high up there not uh, well pretty high in the mid-range i guess um i'm gonna put this just below carney and just above galaxina okay um i am putting this just below galaxina and just above the gong show movie but it seems like we're all in similar place yeah I think that's about it for this one. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show, and if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can support the show through Patreon.com slash VintageVideoPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Blue Lagoon which IMDb describes like so. In the Victorian period, two children are shipwrecked on a tropical island in the South Pacific. With no adults to guide them, the two make a simpler life together, unaware that sexual maturity will eventually intervene. We leave you now with the trailer for Blue Lagoon. A wooden ship. A fire at sea. Up you go! And two young children are cast adrift. Fortune washes them ashore on a fertile isle. But fate deserts them, and they are left utterly alone. The years passed, but no ship ever did. Yet the boy and the girl grew strong and tall and beautiful, raising themselves on instinct in the bounty of their lost paradise. But this was no Eden. There were mysteries at work here, disturbing and compelling. The one mystery lay on the forbidden side of the island, dark, sinister, killing. The other mystery was hidden deeper still. What are you doing, Richard? Within this girl, now woman, This boy, now man, the mystery of desire. She sees that his shoulders are wide. She senses there is one secret here she doesn't know. What are you looking at? Your muscles. And something inside her stirs. I feel so funny in my stomach. Me too. My heart's beating so fast. Mine too.
Columbia Pictures presents a sensuous story of natural love, starring Brooke Shields and introducing Christopher Atkins. The Blue Lagoon.